A team of scientists at Oxford University say they've reached a really important milestone in their work to develop a vaccine for coronavirus. They say the vaccine they're developing appears to be safe and triggers an immune response based on early trials involving more than 1,000 people. The government has already ordered 100 million doses of the vaccine. In the last half an hour, um, the first AstraZeneca vaccine has been delivered in the UK in the last hour or so. Um, it was given to an 82-year-old patient at the Churchill Hospital in Oxford. We can see him now. He's Brian Pinker. Um, he describes himself as Oxford-born and bred, and he um, said, shall I read you the statement? It's rather lovely. He says, I'm so pleased to be getting the COVID vaccine today. Really proud that its one was invented in Oxford. The nurses, doctors and staff today have all been brilliant. And I can now really look forward to celebrating my 48th wedding anniversary with my wife, Shirley, later this year. Happy anniversary. The research and innovation taking place at the University of Oxford is the best in the world, according to many measures. Work at the university led to a vaccine for COVID-19 being produced alongside pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. Oxford is not the only UK university where world-class research is being delivered. Indeed, the UK's universities are one of the parts of the country that genuinely are world-class. But something of a revolution has been happening behind the scenes. The University of Oxford is thinking more than ever before about how to turn its brilliant ideas and work into businesses. These are businesses that one day could help to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing the world. For the UK and its economy, the results of all this could be a game changer. I'm Graham Ruddick and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past and asks, what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we're looking at the innovation coming out of the University of Oxford and how ideas that may once have just fizzled out or turned into businesses abroad are now being spun out into businesses right here in Oxford in the UK. This is happening thanks to financial backing from Oxford Science Enterprises, a firm that invests in spin-outs from the university and has attracted more than £850 million of funding since it was set up in 2015. To look at this story, I spoke to three people at the centre of it. Three people at the centre of a collaboration between the university and the private sector. They are Professor Chaz Bountra, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Innovation at the University of Oxford, Baroness Nicola Blackwood, previously the Minister for Innovation and now Chair of Oxford University Innovation, which manages the university's intellectual property portfolio, She was also the MP for Oxford West and Abington between 2010 and 2017 and studied at the university. Finally, we have Alexis Dormandy, the Chief Executive of Oxford Science Enterprises and previously a partner at venture capital firm Atomico and a director at Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Group. Let's start with Professor Bountra. I was in Oxford in the mid-80s, 85 to 88, and you know, frankly, my job as an academic then was to do two things. It was to teach and it was to do research, write papers, get grants and do more research. Nobody talked about innovation, enterprise, commercialization, And frankly, industry was a dirty word in Oxford. So when I left in 88 to go and work in Glaxo, many of my colleagues thought, what the hell is he doing? 
Well, I came back in 2008. I think in 2015, when OSE was set up, that was a step change in Oxford. You know, prior to 2015, this university was creating, I don't know, four or five companies a year. As soon as OSE came along, we're 20 plus, you know, and it's amazing. I think we've also seen another step change in the past three years. You know, in the past three years, you've seen what this university did in the pandemic, you know, with the vaccine, the recovery trial, etc., etc. And now many of my colleagues, academics, researchers, all the student body, etc., they have seen this is what you can do if you work with industry and you work with government and you work with the regulators and you work with the funders and you work with the entrepreneurs, Vaxitech, you can create something that can put into three billion arms and get the world out of this pandemic, etc. You know, it's been step changing that, you know, I think that's probably the biggest knowledge exchange impact story to come out of any university on the planet in the past five decades, etc. It's phenomenal. So now I'm seeing a palpable change. I mean, sort of, we now have in Oxford a number of academics who are serial entrepreneurs. You know, Matthew Wood, Constantine Kuzos, Len Seymour, etc., etc. And people are looking at these individuals and saying, well, if they can do it, we can do it as well. So there's a much greater appetite amongst the academic community, amongst the researchers, amongst the students. I'm getting lots of students coming to me and saying, look, I don't want a traditional career. You know, I don't want to do a PPE degree and then go and work in Goldman Sachs and then become the next chancellor and then maybe the next prime minister, etc. I don't want to have a boss. I want to focus on some of these big global problems. And I want to learn how to be a leader and an entrepreneur and how to write a business plan. So there has been a massive culture change in Oxford. First big change, I think, was when OSE happened seven years ago, and then another one in the past three years with the pandemic, etc. And and just having people like Nicola and Alexis, I mean, you know, these people are such great team players. And this is a team sport. Alexis, if I bring you in next, you, you joined in 2020, after a a long and successful career, what attracted you to the role in the first place? That's really easy. I mean, where else in the world do you go? And and we all only get one life. And you get to spend your days working with literally the best people in the world at what they do. People people say world-class management teams, world-class this, world-class that all the time. And, but actually, you, you are genuinely working with the world leaders at, at what they do, at solving the world's problems. I mean, I can't really think of anything else you'd rather do with your life. Um, I happened to, through my career, picked up some, some expertise about how to launch businesses and fund them and do that sort of thing. And so to get it to apply it here is, I mean, it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Could you just sort of put into, uh, for those who don't know, what sort of opportunities you're seeing in terms of the quality of the ideas and then what stages they're at as, as businesses? Uh, sure. So, I mean, if it helps, we, we, we've got sort of four, um, four types of business we do, four sectors we invest in, one of which is basically self, saving people's lives, saving and, and improving the quality of people's lives, um, which is healthcare. We've got a sector which is around the planet and the environment. We've got a sector which is around food and health and personal security. And then we've got a sector which is around fundamental technologies. Um, which is things like quantum computing and, and so on. And then we will invest on things from 
literally there's a scientific paper published that could one day solve a massive world problem. And then we invest the whole way through that to IPO and everywhere in between. Next question then is process. How does it work between you and the university in terms of finding the ideas and then developing them? So, so in terms of how, how we all work together, that is another reason, by the way, which was a real appeal of this job. It really is a team sport. So you've got the academics coming up with sort of great ideas. You've got OUI, who is helping find those ideas and helping both the academics and the university, if you like, sort of package them into investable opportunities. And then you've got us trying to look for the opportunities and put money into them and expertise to sort of build them up and so on. I, I can genuinely say I can't tell you where the edges are between those things. It doesn't feel like three separate opportunities. It's just like there's one team. And yeah, we, we, I mean, I genuinely feel like I'm in the same team as everybody else. I couldn't tell you where the, where, where, if you like, my OSE team started and finished and where the OUI team started and finished and where the university started and finished. Um, and I think that's a huge part of that is just down to the culture of the organisation and, and, and actually just the people in it. Like the people in it are all highly motivated to do good in the world. So it helps it. How much has that improved over time? Because when, when we spoke in the summer, I remember you, you were talking about how the relationship has evolved and improved over time. It was probably as good as it's good as it's ever been. Because on the face of it, you know what is happening here is certainly when you started off in 2015 was, was pretty radical, and, and it's a, in many ways a different sort of culture for a university to and people within it to sort of adapt to. So how how much has it got better, and where were the sort of challenges that you've learned? with each other how to work together more powerfully yes yeah, so I, I on some level i'm the least qualified to answer the question because I've, I've only been here two years so so other people should should input i think that there has been in the past a suspicion of money and so that dealing with that has been been sort of one of the issues uh, yeah i actually think somebody else should answer the question because for me it's been been actually remarkably easy just there just hasn't been conflict. Um, and- I think Alexis is being very modest here. I mean, sort of, you know, what, the reason I love working with Alexis is many, many times he said to me, sort of, he cares about this university. He wants the benefits of this activity to come back into the university. He's done so much to sort of help our departments and their budgets, etc. He's helped us create new initiatives like the increasing diversity in enterprise. And many times he said to me, he said, Chaz, just view me as an employee of the Oxford University, but I'm paid for by OSC. Uh, I think that sort of culture, that sort of feel, you know, it's, I can't imagine you'll get that everywhere. I think it's brilliant. So thanks, Alexis. Nicola, can I bring you in? When you first joined the organisation, again, similar question to Alexis, what attracted you to the role in the first place? I know you've got a long history, obviously, with Oxford, so I presume you were sort of at least partly aware of what was going, what was going on I, here. I feel like I've never left Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a it's a very alluring place. I mean, you have some of the most exciting thinkers across all disciplines here, and um, you you will always find um, if you if you look under a rock, um, new discovery, innovation world-leading impact um, in this um, innovation ecosystem. Um, it is it is like a magnet which draws you back again and again. 
and it renews itself all the time. There is a reason that this is now um, the leading innovation ecosystem in, in Europe. But it is not just because of the work that has gone into maturing this ecosystem. I, I, this is actually the second time I've been on the board of OUI. I was here in 2017 and now I'm back again. Um, like I said, the magnet draws you back. Um, but the first time I was here, it was more um, in startup phase. And there were sort of elements that it was still felt that it was visionary. There were still elements of controversy about innovation happening within a, a university that was primarily driven by research excellence, as, as Chaz was talking about. And since then, we've obviously gone through one of the greatest global challenges of living memory. And Oxford played this outstanding and almost unrivaled global role in terms of not just the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, but also QCOVID and a number of other innovations which saved millions, if not more, lives. And all of a sudden, those who had felt as though innovation should be playing a peripheral, at least secondary role, uh, within the work of those of the university realised that this should be a primary activity of the ecosystem and there needed to be activity and work spent on strengthening the, the partnerships, the structures that went on. And it really is down to the extraordinary leadership of Chaz and Alexis uh, and many others across the university um, that the training, the support, the structures have been put in place. And, you know, I've spent the last few weeks on calls with, you know, divisional directors and others, and, and the tune has changed extraordinary. They see the impact of innovation within their work as evidence of success now. And that's really exciting. And it is starting to demonstrate that we will see um, not just um, you know performance as status quo, but a massive acceleration of the impact. And the second thing is that um, the university is reaching out to partners across the country. So we're seeing partnerships with Cambridge, with Manchester, with Edinburgh. And that means that we will see a national level impact globally, uh, which is even more exciting. When we say we're one team within Oxford, we will start to see you know, no edges um, across the national innovation ecosystem. Here are some examples of ideas that have been spun out of the University of Oxford, turned into businesses and received funding from Oxford Science Enterprises. You have Vaxitech, co-creators of the COVID vaccine. There's also First Light Fusion, which is working on fusion energy. And Orca Computing, which provided the first quantum computer to the Ministry of Defence in 2022. In total, Oxford Science Enterprises has backed more than 80 businesses, which now employ 2,500 people. OSE has committed £500 million to these businesses itself, with £1 billion more going into them from other investors. Dormandy explains a bit more about the businesses that OSE has backed. We have everything from investments in understanding at a, sort of, at a global scale, what the impact of natural capital resources is for different investors and, and so on. We have things around the chemistry of producing drugs, which at the moment has a sort of, it, it's very expensive and, and, and has sort of toxicities and solutions to that. There's been solutions around wastewater and how you clean wastewater far more effectively and cheaply. There's much more efficient electric engines. 
there's a whole number of um, quantum related sort of businesses in both quantum computing and quantum cryptography. I mean, it's astonishing. We, we do our, our investment committee on Tuesday and quite often Tuesday feels like I'm, I'm doing a sort of double physics lesson followed by a double chemistry lesson followed by a double biology lesson and back to the start. And every single one of them is, I mean, the ones that actually get to the IC are the ones that the investment committee are the ones that you know, every one of them has a, that would change a proper problem in the world that people care about. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Has it started to become a competitive advantage for you when with students and when with staff as well that they are now more aware that if they have an idea that shows promise, the opportunities will be there for them to develop it here in Oxford? The number of people who want to do this now is just growing and growing and growing. And I think there's an expectation. I mean, I think people are now looking to universities like Oxford to come up with solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges. You know, I worry about lots of healthcare challenges, you know, dementia, mental health, cancer, diabetes, AMR, etc. But, you know, as Alexis has touched on, you know, we've got major challenges around the climate emergency, you know, green energy, carbon capture, biodiversity, more food, more water, you know, the impact of technology on society, inequalities, etc. We've got people across this university working in all those spaces. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's absolutely true. I mean, if you look at the, the um, demography of the academics that we have in this university and you match it against the challenges which our governments <coughs> are trying to respond to at the moment, not particularly effectively, I may say, it really is the innovators and the innovations which we have coming through the system right now, which are going to be our salvation. You've got um, Yasumotors who are acquired by um, Mercedes-Benz, you know, next generation electric motors. You've got Oxford Nanopore coming through with next gen sequencing technologies. Those are not ju- That's not just for human sequencing, but also um, for tackling problems like um, AMR. They have a, an, an amazing um, trial that's going on at King's where you'll, you can have the, it's, it's in the ITUs and you'll have um, the rounds will start at the beginning of with the first patient. You can sequence the first patient um, and by the end of the round, you'll know the pathology of the virus or the pathogen. And so you can give them the completely accurate, not broad spectrum antibiotic. And so you can reduce um, resistance, which is such a huge problem. Just imagine the application for that, not just obviously for that, but also for um, pandemic um, preparedness. And, And we can go through with example after example after example, where all of these seemingly impossible challenges, the solutions are starting to come out of you know, Oxford um, and research intensive universities. And so this is where the hope lies, right? This is where we can start to see the hope and the opportunity. And that is why, you know, students are being drawn to this because otherwise it's a quite bleak picture. Well, well, I was going to ask you, how important are universities in terms of generating innovation in the UK and for the economy more generally? It's absolutely foundational. This is where you have the high intensity, knowledge intensive, high value solutions coming forward. But it only works, of course, where you have it in partnership with the right investors, with the knowledge of how to commercialise effectively, with the right kind of uh, management teams who can scale fast and effectively and make the right business decisions. And also where you have, you know, the right policy environment, the right regulatory environment. And, And that's what we're starting to get in the UK, actually. That's why we're sort of driving ahead from Europe. I mean, it's worth saying, I mean, the biggest innovation hubs on the planet, they are centred around the best universities on the planet. Just look at Boston and Stanford and 
China, etc., etc. So if the UK government wants the UK to be a science superpower, frankly, they need universities like this one. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced that solutions to some of the world's biggest problems are not going to come from governments and they're not going to come from corporates. They're going to come from individuals who are great leaders or great innovators or great entrepreneurs. I mean, just look at what people like Elon Musk have done or Bill Gates has done or Steve Jobs has done or Bezos has done or whatever, whatever. These are individuals who have created new industries. They have changed the planet. They have created thousands of jobs. They produce many millionaires and they produce quite a few billionaires. And they've created trillion dollar industries. Can you imagine if we just had one trillion dollar industry in Europe? At the moment, we don't. They're all in the US or China. Lex, that brings me quite nicely onto you um, in terms of promising industries and where the UK is right now. Because when we spoke earlier in the year, you were very optimistic. And I, I went and looked back and the, words you, the phrase you used was the UK would have to be extremely stupid to mess up the opportunity it has here in terms of the quality of the pipeline people coming through. Quite a lot has happened <laughs> since then. So are you still as optimistic? And if, if so, where are those trillion dollar industries, as Chad said, going to come from? So there's two bits. Perhaps I'll pick up on the question before where you asked about these of like how important are universities. You, I just cannot get over to you the degree to which like a place like Oxford and, and, and other academic institutions are they're a, this engine that you just would not believe. I, I've worked in a bunch of different places in sort of entrepreneurial <clears> environments. <throat> and whereas in those environments, it's very much around trying to find solutions to business problems. And you, and that's how you sort of investment companies make, make money here. It's just unbelievable. Every single day, they've got this engine that's just pumping stuff up. And, and honestly, nothing that a politician does or goes on is going to stop that engine. That engine is just pumping as fast as you can imagine. The issue is, do we have the things on the receiving end of that engine to actually turn it into the industries Chaz talks about? And so that engine is alive and well and going at 100 miles an hour. The challenge, is, I think, is on the rest of us to help actually make that come out and that's where government can help make that happen faster but they couldn't do anything to get rid of the engine anyways that, that that's that's very alive very well and actually there isn't really anywhere else that produces even a fraction of the output that the academic institution of the uk do you've, you've recently done a fundraising as we've touched on as part of the process i presume you spoke to investors a whole around the world given what your investor base is what sort of interest did you find there was in what's happening here in oxford so, so one of the ways I, I sort of describe it is, I don't know, 10 years ago, um, investors wanted to, were looking at sort of consumer business. There, there were a lot of mattress businesses. You couldn't move for mattress businesses getting invested in. So consumer businesses, you made money out of selling mattresses to people. Great. And then about probably five years ago, you have sort of enterprise became sort of, and B2B businesses became. And there were there lots of software, software as a service businesses, SaaS businesses came up, which were all selling to, to corporates that had very nice revenue profiles. And that's how you made money. And I think the bit that's now happening is the world shifted to actually, we need to, we've sort of played that game, but actually we actually need to solve some, solve some fundamental problems. And the way that people, investors will make money is by solving fundamental problems. Um, and then you go, well, where, where do you go if you want to invest in solving fundamental problems? At which point you go, you come to the academic institutions of, 
of the major academic institutions of the world. And then you get to, you know, anybody writes their list of top 10 academic institutions of the world and the reality is Oxford turns up on that list. So, so I think in a sense, that bit's the easy bit because it's just, it's just inevitably true. And it's the, if you look at the amount of money that's been invested in life sciences and in deep tech, life sciences, I think, has been growing by 35% CAGA for like the last five years. Deep tech's been growing at 50% CAGA for the last two years. It's just going through the roof and people are searching for the opportunities now. Um, so in fact, the demand for investors is very high and the <clears throat> science is there it's actually the linking of those two that's important and that's almost that is what OSE does and that is part of that investment story that we were talking to people about how was does the changing economic environment change things in terms of the uncertainty that it brings will it mean that you have to deal differently with certain businesses and is there different pressures on you from investors Um, I think you need longer term investors whereas in in a bull market there's lots and lots of people who want to invest in everything and you can sort of keep on getting new investors and keep on getting up rounds and sort of just sort of keep rolling rolling that sort of that through um in a calmer market you need to be able to go longer before you get the next investor in it'll get more back to the fundamentals of you've got to prove this thing works you've got to have proper milestones those milestones have got to be achieved if you achieve those milestones you'll get investors so i think it will change the dynamics in the market in terms of just having money won't be enough. You've actually got to have a long-term perspective on it and you've got to have investors around you that have long-term perspectives. Otherwise, you'll sort of discover yourself with overvalued assets that you suddenly are trying to prop up at the last minute, which would be foolish. I mean, you know, it's an interesting question, Graham. I mean, I, I tend not to worry about money. My biggest worry is always talent. It's people. Because if you get the right people, they will come up with the right ideas. And it's that combination that's magic. And I think if you have the right people with the right ideas, you will always get the funding, no matter how tight. I mean, the money may be from all four corners of the world, but I do believe investors all over the world are looking for the right teams of people with the right ideas. And this place has got more than its fair share. For what is worth, I couldn't agree with everyone. There is a lot of money out there for people who want to invest in good ideas that are managed by good teams in good environments. There's no problem at all with raising money with that. It, it's just, it's you need to have the you need to have the talent and you need to have the fundamental technology idea in the middle of it. In a sense, does it make what you're doing here even more valuable and important, given the short-term pressures that are likely to be on other forms of funding that people from Oxford and startups could have got in the past? I mean, I think if there's one one risk that could and will probably come in the next few years everywhere, it's political instability. Because when you have economic pressures, such as we're experiencing globally, and and here in the UK, um, you do experience political turbulence. And the way political turbulence plays out is in a bunch of bumpy decisions, uh, which can create friction that impacts all of us um, in regulatory terms. For smaller starting up companies, uh, that has a disproportionate impact. And so the reason the people matter so much is because they can navigate those bumps more effectively and and survive the turbulence uh, in a more sophisticated manner. That's exactly what all of us within the innovation ecosystem in Oxford help the startups to do. It also matters to have the patient investor 
because when those bumps happen, if you have you know capital deployed in, in weird kinds of ways, you can make sure that your company, which might have more easily found um, an institutional buyer or M&A, and, and maybe it kind of pulls out a little bit more, then in that, in that way, they can ride it out a little bit more. And so I just think that that's the likely risk over the next few years. And the, the, the reason I think the universities matter and why innovation within universities will be so successful over the next little while is because they have this cushion of the support of the institutional innovation advice support. They can also bring in the most sophisticated management teams to work around and hedge around uh, the innovators to navigate what will be quite an unusual and unpredictable policy environment. That, I think, will be very important, particularly because the innovations that come out during this period will be to solve a lot of the challenges, which I suspect governments will not be able to respond to. I think Nicola's point's a really important one. I mean, the world is crazy at the moment. It's changing rapidly it's becoming increasingly competitive. Now, in that sort of environment, even more, you need great leaders, you need great innovators, and you need great entrepreneurs. That's what we need more of. Because great leaders, they will still have a vision, they will inspire, energize, enthuse, pull people along. Great innovators, they will produce a step changes. Great entrepreneurs, they will never take no for an answer. If you put a hurdle in their way, they will get round it or jump over it somehow, etc. We don't just need great researchers. We desperately need great leaders, innovators and entrepreneurs. That's what I think people like Musk and um, Gates and you know, that's what those individuals are, actually. How do, how do you get more of those people? Well, I'm always on the lookout for them. And is, it is it just a case of finding them and giving them the platform to, to do it? And supporting them and nurturing them and enthusing them and exciting them and making things easy for them and open the door for them. I think, I think one of the things that is true is that when, when people see the example of what is possible, um, they then rise to that challenge. And so often, I think, historically, people who could have um, been a great innovator or entrepreneur within the academic ecosystem would never have thought of such a thing because they never had the role model, they never had the example. But we now have such a mature ecosystem, and a lot of this is thanks to the partnership uh, with OSE, where you know previously hidden innovators and innovations have never been invested in. These are all coming out of the woodwork, and we're able to highlight those. And so as the successes start to rise up and you know we can think of all of these Mirabio, uh, Nanopore, um, even Archibio and all of these show the way and when you have you know the, the frameworks <coughs> and pathways the examples of a diverse range of, of founders all of a sudden people think oh I could do that and then you have much more of a pipeline of, of founders of innovators of leaders but you also need to provide the support the roadmap the training and we do all of that here and, and the incubators of course and we do all of that here in Oxford. I mean, you're absolutely right, Nicola. I mean, when you've got role models and success stories, that's what really motivates and energizes and enthuses young kids. It's incredible. The, uh, the other bit I was going to add is just, it's actually about ambition. So I have to be, even what I'm about to say will prove the point. I have to be careful about saying, like, I turn up every day wanting to like change the world or solve the world's problems. Because you say that in the UK and 
people think either you're delusional or obnoxious or one of the above. If you lived in San Francisco, people, if you said anything less than that, they were wondering why you were bothering to turn up at work. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about, and I do mean the word beautiful things about working here, is from an academic point of view, the sort of intellectual sort of beauty of trying to solve one of these problems, that's culturally absolutely fine. The issue is then to create an environment where you're allowed to turn up and say, right, I want to solve mental health issue came up with that happens we've got two businesses we've just invested invested in on mental health so say what are we actually trying to do to actually solve mental health issues in teenagers like like that's a massive issue everyone knows it is like and not i want to make a bit of money by doing a app that will help whatever it's like no i want to take the incredibly high levels of, of mental health issues you have in teenagers and i want to halve it we need to have a culture where that's that's why you turn up to work every morning um, and i think that's part of the journey and actually, strangely, a place like Oxford, because the academic community thinks like that anyway, is actually quite a fertile ground. We do, we do need to be honest that at Oxford we need to do better about diversifying our founder base. Um, we're not where we want to be on that. And I know that Alexis has taken this on as a real priority as CEO of OSE. And all of us across the innovation ecosystem see this as a priority. And so we're working hard to increase um, the diversity of our founder base because um, we know that um, this is um, something that we have headroom on. We, we, you know, it's not possible that only um, young white men want to be um, entrepreneurs. We think that there are many, many more entrepreneurs from different backgrounds in Oxford, and we want to find them and support them. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Diversity in in every sense, or is there a specific sense where you think you need to do better? Well, I think we can start on the gender axis, but I think it should be um, on on every on every angle, but starting with gender. I mean, I think maybe we should ask Alexis to talk about this as he's taken us on as a particular personal priority. I think on every axis, I mean, and it doesn't matter which way you want to approach it, whether you want to approach it as a moral issue or you want to approach it as a pragmatic issue. The, the, the reality is if we just say sort of uh, young white men are the only source of it, these opportunities, well, that means we've just cut out, let's call it 75% of the population before we've even started. That's pretty stupid, as well as being morally non-sustainable. So that's the journey we're on. I mean, one of the things that, I'm always torn about saying this because I don't want to be sort of celebrate things. So I think we're still a long way from where we need to be. But as it happens, OSC is now the largest gender balanced investment firm, I think, in the world. I haven't found one that's, um, that's, that's equal. But, and what I mean by that, I mean, at, the, at every level of the organisation, we've got an equal number of men and women. Now, then you go, what's, how's that reflected in the founders we support? And it isn't 50-50 yet. And then if you then added racial and ethnic diversity, then it's, that's also got to be worked out. And I, I, my reaction is back to Chaz's point about where do we find the entrepreneurs and where do we find sort of the, the innovators? That's a huge pool of people that, that we're missing out on because the systems don't yet support those people getting the opportunities to build these businesses. So it's something which we're all... We're all actually working quite hard on, really on both sides of that equation. There's obviously lots of theories why... Cause this is a problem in, in the VC startup world, not just in the UK, but in America and, and various other places. Why do you think startups and the VC world has been dominated by young white men? You can re-ask the question in a moment, but I'll turn it slightly around, which is like, what what did we do to end up with like an equal number of partners and senior partners and associates, whatever, that are men and women? We just made, we just made OSC a place where, a woman might actually want to work like it's so so i think the reality is the whole system set up in a way that is 
very male dominated and that's everything from like are you allowed to like are you allowed to talk about having a family are you allowed to like have children do you have to hide them because actually when you're trying to balance being a parent and being a sort of doing a job is that sort of like you've got to hide away and this honestly you just wouldn't believe the number of things which i don't think are equitable in the way that people basically approach this um but and, and then the flip side is you sort those things out and suddenly in that case women who work in the industry want to come and work for you because they go thank heaven for that there's somebody actually i don't have to you know apologize for half of my sort of my, my non-work personality you know just to get through the day so i think it's really that simple at some level that there, there, there are just a bunch of things done that aren't set up in a way that make things genuinely equal um for people to work i think once you solve that problem you then actually have got some sort of underlying issues of do do you sort of in terms of the training where do you source the people who work in those industries those sort of things which are in themselves not sort of equal but um i mean i think at the first bit is just we all just got to look at ourselves and go you know are we genuinely offering equal opportunities to everyone do you think the setup that is here and the ecosystem has been developed here and we're already seeing signs of it being sort of adapted and, and put into place in other parts of the UK and other universities. Do you think you've got something here that could be and should be used by other places in the UK? Well, we, I mean, we work really closely across different universities and in, in, in partnership and we'll do different roadshows and things with the other universities. It's not like we're kind of out on a limb in our own little, <laughs> in our own little ecosystem on a separate planet. And I'm sure we have a lot to learn from innovations in other universities as well. But if we need to put together, you know, some material on, you know, IP practice or something, we would do it in partnership with other universities. And I think that's really important because we are, as a nation needing to represent us, you know, as, as, a, as a national group, the universe, innovative universities, we need to represent ourselves to government at different times. And we also need to make sure that innovative system in the UK is more than the sum of its parts. But I also think, you know, we're doing some amazing things in Oxford. It is, I mean, the, the evidence speaks for itself. Um, and so I would be happy if a lot of the work here was replicated in different places. A lot of what we have heard so far is incredibly optimistic about the future. Given the sort of year 2022 has been, the downcast economic outlook and some of the challenges facing the planet, this is a welcome change. But the collaboration between the university and Oxford Science Enterprises has brought challenges and controversies too. Those who have provided funding to OSCE and invested in it have included Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, as well as Qatar's sovereign wealth fund and Alphabet's venture capital arm. There has also been questions about how long it takes to spin businesses out of the university and whether the terms are fair for the academics involved. Here's Professor Bountra. In this wonderful university, we've got a brilliant committee called the Committee for Research Donations and Research Funding. And they scrutinise whenever we set up a big partnership with a country, a university, a company, a investor, whatever, uh, they will scrutinise who we're getting the funding from. Because you're right, I mean, many of our student body and many of our researchers and faculty do not want us to take money from certain organisations. And you can guess which those organisations are. So we're very diligent on that front. But having said that, I mean, sort of for me, what's more important is what we do with that money, you know, sort of um, 
you know, if we're developing new therapeutics or we're developing, you know, technologies to capture carbon from the atmosphere or, you know, new fusion energy or something that's going to say solve the world's energy problems, then sort of, you know, for what matters to me more is what we're going to do with the money, etc. And as Nicola touched on earlier, we identified where were the pinch points, where are the problems, where are the bottlenecks, where's the friction, etc. And we've literally come up with a plan to address each of those. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect yet. You know, we'll tackle some of those problems and we are tackling them now. Next year, there'll be different problems and we'll relook at it again, etc. So, so, you know, in that review, what we did was we said, okay, look, We've come a long way in seven years. Where do we want to be in five years' time, ten years' time, etc.? Can I ask you what a, what a couple of the problems were that came up? Well, one of the things we'd already done was we'd incentivized our academics to do more of this sort of activity. And so the founding equity, you know, the amount of equity that the university has and the amount of equity that the academics uh, keep. Now, before that process was taking a long time, people were getting frustrated. There was a perception this university was being greedy. It was a perception. It wasn't true. But we've made that whole process more transparent and simpler and binary and beneficial for the academics. So the academics get 80 or 90 percent of the company. The university gets 20 or 10 but, you know, it's either or, it's not negotiable, it's transparent, etc. So that was one thing. I mean, we wanted to increase the size of our incubator. So we've done that. We've talked about diversity. That's that's something that we're working on, etc. So those were some of the problems. But another one was that we want more of our students were wanting training in how to become future Alexis Dormandies. You know, they wanted to be... You can't be that desperate. <laughs> They wanted to be a leader or an innovator or an entrepreneur. They want to learn how to write a business plan. So we've started a course run out of the business school. You know, we funded that. And so I think you're going to see lots of changes. Our ambition is we need more investors in Oxford. We want more links with global corporates, diverse global corporates. We need more innovation space. And we haven't really talked about that today. We're doing a lot in that space. And we need more scale-up entrepreneurs. So I suppose when I start off, so sometimes I describe my job as you start with science, you take the science, you go to impact. How do you maximise the impact from that science? Then how do you maximise the returns from that impact? And then you, how do you maximise the returns going back into the top, into the, into the science? And if you can go round and round that loop as fast as possible and where the pipes between those things are as big as possible, that's how you build up the, the science superpower that Chaz talks about. So... Now, what would I like to do across that? I'd like to say, you know, we, we, you give the example of the vaccine. I'd say in, in 10 years time, we should be able to point to 10 things that are of that scale, where there's fundamental problems in the world that everyone can understand and exist, and they've been addressed by the people inside Oxford and the machine we create. And I know everyone goes, well, that's totally unrealistic and whatever else. I just don't believe it is. It's just that is absolutely doable. If you saw the, the research and the science that, that I see coming out of the university, that's perfectly doable. But the next step is saying, right, if you've created that impact, then, then do you build businesses around it? You can have the IP and you can have the science, but can you build businesses and industries around that? So I think that then becomes about both financial returns, but about jobs. 
Like at the moment, we have it's about two and a half thousand jobs within the OSE portfolio. How does that become five thousand? How does that become ten thousand? How does it become twenty thousand? And that's a, that is not just about job creation. That's about creating an ecosystem where those people are moving between businesses and they succeed in one business, and then they're the entrepreneur for the next business. And then, and actually, that is one of the things. The really big hubs in the US. That is actually the the unique bit of them is you have people who succeed in one business then go somewhere else start up the next one they then they have 10 people under them and they go on and that's it's the talent point that Chaz is making and then the last bit is actually i'd go is actually completing the loop back into the into the university where that where that the fruits of that go back into the science so you speed up that loop and, and on that bit then the example that um Chaz gave about the the 80-20 split of equity. One of the important things for me in that was actually that the departments actually get part of that as well. And so that actually making the funds flow back into the departments and flow back into the universities and flow back into research so that you spin that faster and faster. And I think you know, if you then go back to you've solved 10 global issues and you've created a lot of very high quality jobs but who are, who are creating an innovation ecosystem in their own right and then the fruits of that are flowing back into the university that's what winning looked like. And I think we should be doing that in five years. We should have that ambition because the raw materials are here. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode or any Business Studies episode, please sign up to Off to Lunch, our sister publication on Substack. There, as well as bonus content, you can expect business news and analysis throughout the week.